You know, when, when Ben is praying for those local ministries, uh, he is praying, what we're praying together is that the kingdom of God, that the good news of God, the gospel would spread out into our community and begin to have uh, a transformative effect around us and the people and the lives, the families and the situations in our community. And so uh, as we think about the kingdom of God going forward, um, I want to use this moment to talk about our mission as a church and where we're headed in the sermon over the next couple of weeks as Andrew uh, gets prepared to come back and begin uh, preaching through Ephesians once again. The book of Ephesians is really about how God's church, the people of God, are called together to take up the mantle of God's mission. And so um, we see that one of the aspects of that mission is for us to lay a hold of our spiritual gifts and to serve together as the body of Christ. One way that you can do that uh, or indicate that you'd like to do that is by serving in our church. And we've created some cards that over the next couple of weeks will be in your seat backs, and it will give you the opportunity, if you're not currently serving on a ministry team, to get in the game, to jump in, to lock arms with fellow brothers and sisters in the local body, and to find creative ways that we can serve, whether it's through the worship team or the welcome team or the AV team, lots of different teams that we can, that we can serve on. And so if you would take that card and look at it, you could get more information about what it means to be involved in those teams. You could fill the card out. And after church, there'll be some uh, collection baskets in the lobby or actually right by the doors, and you could just drop it in there. It doesn't commit you to serve. just says, I want to get more information about what it means to be a part of the team. Now, as we all know from our Jonah series, that when it comes to serving and moving forward in mission, that there's a sense of comfort that we run to, a sense of self-righteousness that holds us back. And so as a transition from where Jonah is and the rest of the Old Testament believers faced with this incredible mission to take God's word and declare his glories to the nations and their inability, it seems, throughout the Old Testament to really do that with much traction, suddenly we see this call in the New Testament having a lots of energy and new enthusiasm. And so the next two weeks, what I want to show us is how that happens, what the pinnacle moment for us is as believers. And I believe it happens at Pentecost, that after Jesus is crucified and resurrected, something happens in the life of the church. And it's so significant that we as believers begin to remember it and own it and see it and believe it and put our hope in it and and experience it again and again and again, that I think we've got to talk about it and not just assume that we know about it. And what we're talking about is Pentecost. And so with that, I think the next two weeks are going to be really great for our church. It's a reminder of, gosh, the temptation to be just like Jonah, and yet this new power that God offers us. What is Pentecost? And so to get us started this morning, we're going to have David Reed come up and read our passage this morning from Acts chapter 2, and we're going to spend the next two weeks unpacking what it means at Pentecost. A reading from Acts 2, 1 through 5, and verses 12 through 41. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. 
All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Verse 12, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Verse 14, then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said this about him. I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of, forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord, God, Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the word of the Lord. God's word was the very first sermon uh, for the church that was preached by Peter. 
And you might have noticed that this very first sermon, as he was reading it, took about four minutes. And so I would encourage you, however, not to consider that a biblical mandate. (laughs) That because of verse 40, which says, with many other words, he warned them that it's really at my discretion this morning, right? The goal today is to answer the, the same question that the crowd was asking on that particular day. All this was happening and somebody pipes up and says, what does this mean? Peter's goal when he stood up on the day of Pentecost and addressed that question, what does this mean? That was what he aimed to answer. And so we aim to hear this morning as well, what does this mean? Let's pray together that we would hear. Well, Father, we pray that you would send your spirit and that you would come and cut us to the heart. Cause us, just like the people in the crowd, at the end of this sermon to say, what shall we do? And even as we ask that question, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would move upon us and help us to respond with repentance and faith. We ask this for your glory. We ask this that Jesus' name would spread out through our midst and through this people. And we ask this for your kingdom and your mission to be spread out throughout Carrollton and the world around us. And we pray in your name. Amen. All right, so if you've ever traveled to Colorado, then you'll know it's a really beautiful place. And along the way, as you're headed out, you're going to see a bunch of really beautiful mountain ridges. Uh, You start here in the east and you begin traveling out west. You'll go from ridge to ridge, these mountaintop views, and they are glorious. But when you get to a certain place as you're headed towards the western ridge, there's one particular place, one ridge, that changes everything. It's a demarcation. It is the Great Divide. And so if you look at that picture right there, you'll see that there's a sign at the top of Loveland Pass called the Continental Divide. And what happens at that spot in Colorado is that everything east of that particular ridge flows down into the Mississippi River. All the the rivers and tributaries and little streams, they all flow east to the Mississippi and ultimately into the Atlantic. And if you're on the western side of that ridge, then everything flows down to the Colorado River and eventually pours out into the Pacific. It's a demarcation. It's a spot that changes the flow of water once you hit that divide. It's what we call a watershed. And so in history, we have this idea that whenever there's a huge turning point in history, this in the past and something new now, we call that a watershed. It's a pinnacle moment, a demarcation. And so I want you to imagine that you were taking a trip throughout redemptive history, that this journey that you were on was leading you throughout the biblical timeline. And you might hit many ridges that were fascinating and would blow you away. Ridges like the life of Moses and Noah, Abraham and David, and each one of those is significant in the biblical storyline. But I want to tell you that what's happening at Pentecost is a watershed. It is the defining moment. It is the great divide. And that's because that from the point of Pentecost moving forward, everything changes. 
It's a demarcation. It's the pouring out of the life-giving waters of the Holy Spirit on the people of God. You see, previous to Pentecost, on the other side of the great divide, anytime you wanted to come into the presence of God, then you had to flow in to a particular place. You had to go to a particular place. You had to go to Jerusalem. You had to go to the temple. And so as you would flow in, that's how you would experience the presence of God. And while leaders in the Old Testament, they may have had a sense or or, or some place of the presence of God placed upon them, prophets, priests, and kings, but if you wanted to meet God, you had to go in. And now, after the great divide, the Spirit is poured out. That's the demarcation. And so now, you don't have to go to a particular place because the Spirit is where? The Spirit is placed upon every single believer. And that means that anytime you encounter a believer in Christ, it's like you're encountering a mini Christ. You are a mini temple. That you actually are the hands and feet of Jesus. The very Spirit of Jesus lives within you. That's a demarcation. That's a pinnacle moment. That's the pinnacle moment of Pentecost. It's so significant that it would make total sense then while Peter is standing up and making and giving us this sermon to clarify exactly what's happening. And it's also obvious that something new and different is happening because the people are asking the question in verse 12, what does this mean? What does this mean? And so as was often the case with Peter, he was the first person to stand up and address the question. Now, there's a total of about 15 sermons that Luke gives us in the book of Acts. Peter preaches eight of them. This is our first. This is his first sermon, and the Spirit begins to work so powerfully and mightily as the Word goes goes forward that 3,000 people are added to the church that day. What does Pentecost mean? So we're going to see that it means three things, and the first thing is that it locates us. Pentecost locates us in a particular period in redemptive history. What do we mean by that? Well, we see this phrase, these are the last days. Now, before we understand the location, Peter gives us a little corrective in verse 14. It says that Peter, in verse 14, stood up with the 11. He raised his voice and he addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. And so he's correcting them. He stands up to correct them and to say, listen, they're not drunk. They simply realize who they are. They realize that they are on the great divide, that the Spirit has been poured out, and that from this point going forward, everything is going to be different. And so to correct them and to help them know that they are not drunk, but rather empowered, he points to Joel. It's pretty remarkable how Peter begins to use the Bible in the first part of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, he has quoted and drew upon Psalm 69 and 109. Here today, he's quoting from Joel chapter 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 110. It's like the Word of God has come alive for him, and it has. In fact, when Jesus is resurrected and he's meeting with the disciples, it says Jesus breathed on them. What do you think that that means? It means that he breathed his spirit on them. Oh, we had somebody that was willing to answer the question. I love that. Interactive. And not only that, but it says in Luke 24, but he opened their minds so that they could understand Scripture. Here's Jesus being with his disciples, pouring his spirit on them, 
opening their minds so that they can understand Scripture. And now Peter has come alive to this reality, and he's beginning to stand up and bring Joel chapter 2. What is Joel chapter 2 about? Well, Joel has predicted this future era when God's Spirit is going to become pervasive in the life of His people. And it would be poured out on everyone, and so that this power would do new things. Now, the context for the book of Joel is that the people of God have just experienced this overwhelming invasion of locusts, and it has wiped out everything, and it's terrible. And what Joel does with the locusts is he says, these things are pointing to a future judgment, and those are just signs of what's going to be even way worse on the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. And yet, in Joel 2, he rings a message of hope. And the hope is this, that before that day of judgment, that there will be this day where the Holy Spirit is poured out on his people, that God will come with compassion and bring restoration through his Holy Spirit. And so Joel, from his place in history, is pointing to the pinnacle. He sees the pinnacle and then the day of judgment on the other side. And now Peter takes this text and as the King James Version says in verse 16, Peter says, this is that which was spoken. I love that little phrase because that's exactly what Peter is saying here. Peter stands up and says, this moment, this moment is that that Joel was writing about. This day is that, this right now, what we're experiencing at Pentecost, is Joel chapter 2. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is fulfilling Joel's prophecy that the whole people of God will begin to prophesy and speak of God's wonders in all the nation's languages and dialects. And that's what we see happening. Look at verse 17. I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those last days. And he has. And they prophesy. They speak the wonders of God in the nation's languages and dialects. This is an incredible introductory picture to the mission of God for the local church that we are called to move out as the church of Jesus Christ to the nations. And so Peter is locating them. He's saying these are the last days. These are the last days. Peter does something in verse 17 that we might miss. In verse 17, to begin it, he says, in the last days. Do you see that? That's actually not in Joel chapter 2. And so as Peter's adding it, and I want to just sort of side note that um, you can do that at Pentecost. You can add things in, but you should not try that at home, okay? This is for Peter to do this. But what he's doing there is he's locating them. He's saying, you are here because the last days were understood to be this period of time between the ascension of Christ and the great day of judgment, These are the last days. Now, oftentimes when we think about that phrase, the last days, we sort of think about, that's probably like two years before Jesus comes back. Everything's going to be terrible then. Or just like in a few weeks, those will be the last days. Or some cataclysmic event. And yet what Peter and the rest of the New Testament writers are doing is saying, no, 
This whole interval between the ascension, the exaltation of Jesus and his return, that is the last days. And so the pinnacle then creates this ridge line that the church of Jesus Christ is living in right now until Christ comes back to end all things. That's Pentecost. And that's where Peter says we are. We're in the last days. New things have started. Because of Pentecost, that means that the mission of God to the nations is going to begin to go, go out even more energetically, with more enthusiasm and more power. That's what the last days are all about. It's a time period of mercy and grace and repentance. And so that means that we as the church are being called to take up our mission in light of who we are and in light of where we are. We're in the last days. We're here right now. One of the things, if you know me well, is that I have a real challenge with sense of direction. It's bad. I can get lost easy. Yesterday I was talking to somebody on the phone. I was at the church asking where something was. They said, oh, you know, it's on the north side of the parking lot. The north side? Does anybody know what the north side is right now? I, I don't. We went uh, hiking, standing in the campground. Should have been easy, just a little hike around the campground. This is in North Carolina out in the Nantahala National Forest. And uh, probably should have taken us 20 minutes. Two and a half hours later, after probably 30 times, my kids are asking, are you sure? Are you sure that we're not lost? I had to admit that this is not an anomaly in my life. If I'm in a mall, if I'm in a hospital, if I'm at a stadium, I, I, I cannot make sense of it. So when the elevator doors to go visit at the hospital, I need the sign, the glorious proclamation, that sign in the mall that says, you are here. I love that sign. It locates me. And I want to suggest that anywhere in life where you are lost and confused and you don't have a sense of direction, to that degree we are hesitant We lack the confidence. We don't know what to do next. And Peter says, there's confidence for you as the people of God. You were located here. These are the last days. Secondly, what Pentecost means is assurance. That what Peter's doing here is he's assuring us. And we have to say, how do we know? How do we know that these are the last days? And Peter answers that question by pointing to Jesus. I love this. That's how you know. Sometimes when uh, professors are teaching people to preach a sermon, they say, you know, come up with the main idea, the big idea. And Peter has a big idea in in his sermon too. It's in verse 36. He says, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's the point of his sermon. And everything he's doing up until verse 36 is simply explaining that God has made him Lord in Christ. Now, does that mean that that God has taken Jesus and then made him Lord in Christ? No, it means that when Jesus is resurrected and exalted, that that confirms and authenticates what's already true about Jesus in front of the people. He is vindicated. He is authoritatively confirmed. You are Lord in Christ And so the way that you actually know that you are here and that that this is that is Jesus. It's Jesus. And you see that in verse 22. I love this. Listen to what he says. It's so simple. He says, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus. Jesus. 
How do you know that you're here? Jesus. Look at Jesus. Peter is assuring them that Jesus is the resurrected Lord and Messiah. How does he offer them that assurance? He goes to two Old Testament passages. Psalm 16 to show them that Jesus is the resurrected Christ or the exalted one. And Psalm 110 to show them that Jesus is this Lord. He has been a He has ascended. He is exalted. And he calls this in verse 32, I love this, a fact. It's an absolute fact. Jesus is the resurrected Christ. Verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. That's so beautiful. He's saying, we don't have to debate about this. I don't have to give you three or four points. You yourselves know. You heard his teaching. You saw his miracles. You saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. You saw him go around healing. You saw him offer forgiveness of sins. You already know. What are you going to do with this? Who is this? And so he goes on in verse 23 and he says, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And so he's making it clear that Jesus did these miracles, that this Jesus who was crucified and sacrificed, that it was by God's sovereign and ordained plan. And while he talks about his miracles and about the crucifixion, he emphasizes the resurrection in verse 24. Look at that in verse 24. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then it says, David set about him. And so now to prove that Jesus is the resurrected Christ, Peter is going to reach back to David in Psalm 16. Now David in Psalm 16 is in big trouble. And he's feeling this troublesome situation, and he's praying for help. He's pleading with God. And so here's what he says. I saw the Lord always before me, in verse 16, always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope. And what is his hope? Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And I ask you the question, who is David talking about when he says, you will not abandon me to the grave and you will not let me see decay, the Holy One see decay? Well, he can't be talking about himself because all those people would have known that David's body was already dead and decaying. In fact, Derek Thomas in his commentary says that Peter's audience could probably walk from where they were in the temple right over to David's tomb, right over to where his body and his his bones were decaying. So if his body is dead and decaying, and he writes, you will not abandon me to the grave, then who is David writing about? And Peter's answer is Jesus. David is speaking prophetically on behalf of one who is to come, the promised ruler, the promised descendant of David, promised in Psalm 89, promised in Psalm 132, in 2 Samuel 7. And so Peter's point is that when Jesus 
had been witnessed seven weeks earlier by his disciples, by his followers, and they had seen his body resurrected, that that was his actual physical body, meaning he was now exempt from decay. And so if David's prophetic word here is true about Jesus, and it was, and they were eyewitnesses, and that God himself rose from the grave, and that Jesus' death could not hold him back, then Jesus is the Christ, and that is a fact. That's what Peter's telling us. And so he explains this the way I just did in verse 29. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died. He was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. Not very far, in fact, from where we're having this little chat. You can go walk over there. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne, verse 31. And seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, and that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. This is Peter telling us how we should read the Bible. He's saying everything in the Bible points to Jesus. All the passages in the old, all the new, it's pointing to Jesus. That's the heart of Scripture. Jesus has opened Peter's mind, shown him how to read the Scriptures. And now Peter is showing us how to do that too. And so verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact. He's saying, you are here. You are here right now. How do you know? Because Jesus is risen. He died, but he is not dead. You are here. And how do we know? Because he is exalted Lord. Verse 33, exalted to the right hand of God. He received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured poured out him on what you now see and hear. To point to this true exaltation, he says in verse 34, For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So that's a little bit of a confusing passage. The Lord said to my Lord, what is he talking about there? Well, Psalm 110, if you look at it, the first usage of the word Lord is the word Yahweh. And we talked about that a couple, a couple weeks ago. That's the word for God, for the covenant God. And so the Lord, Yahweh, is speaking to the second Lord in this passage, speaking about a superior leader, a superior ruler of David. And so who is David speaking of? When the Lord said to my Lord, he's speaking of Jesus, David's son and David's Lord. What does this mean for us? It means assurance. You are here, we are here in the last days, and we have experienced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so we can be assured of that because Jesus says, because Peter says that Jesus is the resurrected Christ and the exalted Lord. If he has fulfilled these prophecies, then that's who he is, and that's a fact, and you've seen it. Number three, What is Pentecost about? Pentecost changes us. It changes us as the people of God. And so if you look at verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to the number that day. God had done this amazing work of change through his spirit and his word. 
Change brought to the people through repentance and faith. The promise of the forgiveness of their sins. And that the pouring of the Spirit would would come upon them. So Pentecost means that the Holy Spirit is present with us here today. With us. That there's power to change. That means that we are not stuck. It means that we don't have to be reluctant runners like Jonah. It means that we don't have to stay unempowered in our cynicism, our self-righteousness. But now by the power of God's Spirit in us, we can move faithfully towards serving and mission and laying our lives down sacrificially. But how does God's Holy Spirit create that change in our lives? Well, he points to two things in this passage. Number one, he cuts us to the heart. And number two, he turns us towards Jesus. That's how the Holy Spirit changes us. He cuts us to the quick, and he points us towards Jesus. And so there's a phrase in verse 32 and in 36 where I believe you see the cut, the piercing. It says, you crucified him. You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. And then in verse 36, God made this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, if you think about that, that would be really shocking for this group of people. Most of them had just gotten there. They were there for a new feast. This is 50 days after Jesus has been resurrected. So how could, how could Peter point to them, these people that may not have even been there, and say, you are responsible for the death of Jesus? And that's the point. The point that Peter is trying to make is that until you and I begin to see that it's my sin that put Jesus on the cross, then I won't have the power to change. Then I'll never change. John Stott says that the cross, you'll, unless you see that the cross was done by you, you'll never see that the cross was done for you. In a minute, we're going to sing, Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. And we're going to sing, it was my sin that held him there. And until we're willing to acknowledge that my sin is what makes Christ's death. You see, I think about the Jonah series and I continue to think about my own sin and I think about how I gloss over it and I justify it. And I write it off as, I'm just not feeling well. I'm really tired. But the truth is, rooted underneath all of that, all of my actions and my cynicism and my doubt and my desire for people to like me is something much more heinous. It's my sin. And what Pentecost does through the power of the Holy Spirit is it cuts us. It tells us we crucified him. I killed him. I killed the Savior. There's a well-known folk tale in Wales, and it's the story of a faithful hound. There was a prince in Wales named Llewellyn in the the 13th century, and he had gone hunting, and when he returned home, he found out that his child, his baby, was missing. And so he scrambles around, and he's looking for him, and his hunting dog, his hound dog, Gellert, comes into the room, and there's blood all over his mouth. And so Llewellyn assumes that his faithful hound dog has killed his child. So he draws his sword and he stabs Gellert in the chest. 
and the dog whimpers and begins to die. And as that happens, he hears his baby crying underneath his cradle. And he flips the cradle over and he finds his baby unharmed. And next to the baby is this big, gray, dead wolf. And so there's this realization that his dog, Luel, his dog Gellert had actually saved his baby. And now he had just killed him. His dog had been the Savior, and he just killed the Savior. And as the the myth goes, as this legendary story goes, that after that moment, Llewellyn was never able to smile again. You know, the hope of the gospel for us this morning is that, yes, while we are responsible for the death of Jesus, that one day we will get to smile again. We will feast and weep no more. That's what we sing. And what Pentecost shows us is that 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 day is now, that these are the last days. If we're left with the message that we crucified him, but we don't hear the hope of the gospel, we get to hear that when they say, what shall we do? They're cut to the heart. They say, what shall we do? And Peter gives them the hope of the gospel. He says, you can smile, repent and be baptized The cross is not only done for you, it's done by you and for you. And so you get to smile again, your joy, your salvation. How does that happen? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And so as the Holy Spirit comes into our life, it enables us to change by pointing us to Jesus. And as we put our faith in Christ, in the work of Christ, we become identified with him. That's why they're baptized in the name of Jesus. It means that everything that was true about Jesus is now true of them as well. All of his work for them, all of his righteousness given to their account. It's this change of mind about Jesus, that's what's repentance. You're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the Lord. You've done all this for me. And so to be baptized in that moment, was to experience this significant change and to begin to be identified with the person of Jesus. I think about when I first began to discover this in my walk with God. It's really early on, and I was involved with Campus Outreach at the, at the time, but our campus director, I thought he hung the moon. I mean, I thought this was a spiritual hero to end all heroes. He was the great man of God on our campus And I can remember he asked me to do something to prepare for our meeting, send out an email or to make a phone call. And he called me on the day of the meeting and he said, hey, Waz, just want to make sure that you had followed up and uh, sent that email out, had checked in with those people. And I hadn't done it yet. And I didn't want to let him down. And I said, oh, yeah, I got it. Took care of it, Matt. I appreciate that. Uh, No problem. We'll see you tonight. And when I hung up the phone, I was cut to the heart. Now, before I had become a Christian, I had no problem with these little white lies. Uh, I'd tell them all the time and spin stories and, you know, never even think twice about it. But I noticed that when I started to have the Holy Spirit living inside of me, he would be putting his finger on this stuff. And he would be saying, hey, hey, how about that? And so as I realized what I had just done, that I had told this little lie, I, I, I realized that it was... It was because there was something deeper underneath that. It was this desire for validation for Matt, our campus director, to think something highly of me. And and I knew what Jesus wanted me to do. He wanted me to pick up the phone and call Matt back and say, hey, 
I just told you a little lie. And I wanted nothing to do with that. And yet in that moment, what the Holy Spirit did, not only cutting me to the heart, pointing me to Jesus and saying, I'm with you and the truth will set you free. And what I want you to know is that I love you and I've already forgiven you of that sin. And so what I want you to do is to come walk with me, to come follow me, to move towards the light. And so as you do that for the rest of your life, you're going to experience more and more freedom. And that's where joy is found. So I picked up the phone, called Matt back, and he was gracious. But it began to show me this new pattern that when we have the Holy Spirit, there is power to move past our sin because he puts his finger on stuff and he cuts us. We don't have to hide it. We don't have to be ashamed of it. We don't gloss over it or justify. We move into it and then he points us to Jesus as a place of hope, not condemnation and guilt. These are the last days. And so the hope of Pentecost is that we are located. We have a new location and we have a new assurance that Jesus is the resurrected Christ and Lord. And now we get to live in light of that change. We have a new power. We are forgiven. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. So brothers and sisters, you are here and you have power. And so if you do not know him this morning, I want you to know where you're at in history. And I want you to know the fact that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Lord. And I want you to repent and to be baptized. And so if that's you, let's pray and ask the Lord that once again, he would come into our hearts and give us this power. God, we are so thankful for this incredible gift, the gift of your Holy Spirit, that you would come and dwell within, within broken people, and that through indwelling us, you would cleanse us and point us to Christ and give us new power. God, I realize that right now many of us are experiencing lots of difficulty, lots of challenges, places where we feel hope, hopeless and and wondering what's next and the unknown about the future. But I pray that even this morning we remember that these are the last days and they are days of great hope. God, help us to see your love this morning in the person of Jesus and to sing of it and to be changed by it and to move forward with confidence and mission because we know where we're at and we know who we have and we have you. And we pray in your name. Amen.